There are a lot of things Beatles fans can argue about. Which album is the best, for instance, or which Beatle was the better songwriter? Songwriting, in fact, has been a site of some heated debates over the years. Early on, John Lennon and Paul McCartney agreed to share writing credits on the songs they wrote for the band. Since the group split up, fans have been trying to figure out which songs belong to which songwriter, leading to sometimes impassioned arguments in bars around the world. Recently, researchers converted the songs into data in an attempt to figure out which songs were written mostly by Lennon and which songs were written mostly by McCartney. One of the researchers is the guest on today's episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department. Richard Campbell is away today. Our guest is Mark Glickman, a senior lecturer of statistics at Harvard University. He's also senior statistician for the Center for Healthcare Organization and Implementation Research. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you very much for having me. I, my, my big opening question is how does a statistician get involved in figuring out authorship of Beatles songs? Well, that is that is the big question. Um, well, uh, the, the uh, I guess the, the starting point is uh, you know it, it doesn't hurt to be a Beatles fan, right? Uh, so, I, so so I I, uh, I actually became interested in the Beatles uh, back when I was about eleven years old, which was well after they broke up. Um, you know, I I was really pretty fascinated with them, and my interest in them had um, you know. Pretty much continued for uh, for my entire life. I mean, maybe not quite as passionately as back then. Right. Um, and then along the way, I ended up meeting this uh, this colleague about four years ago, uh, my co-author Jason, who turns out also be a, a Beatles fan. Uh, and we were talking about some Beatles-related things. The topic just came up because he had done some work on uh, some Beatles-related uh, topics. And we were discussing the idea of being able to um, predict this one particular song, uh, the song In My Life mm -hmm. by the Beatles. And, you know, he, he made a big point about saying, you know, uh, you know no, that one particular song is in big dispute about which of uh, Lennon or McCartney wrote it. Right. And he had some ideas uh, based on some of his mathematical background, how to identify uh, whether McCartney or Lennon wrote it, but you know the statistic, the statistical instinct in me kicked in, and I had some thoughts about how we might um, address this problem, and so we ended up uh, forming this uh, working relationship, and and that's what led to this work. So why why that song in particular? Well, that song uh, is a, a kind of a special song. It, it's uh, it's listed as the twenty third. Um, best song of all time, according to Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, so it, it has a, a certain cachet just to begin with. Um, so that song, you know, kind of drew us uh, to doing this work. But that's not the only song among the Lennon-McCartney songs that are in dispute. Um, there are a bunch of other ones. Uh, but this is the one that really was the main motivation for our work. Were there particular songs where it was, it was clear who was the lead author of them? Yeah, the, um, there, there's a, a, a special way that you can actually tell, generally speaking, which uh, of the two um, songwriters actually wrote the song, and that's who sung it. <laughs> 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 um, 
Um, but, that narrows so that it down. Always, unfortunately, that doesn't always work. Um, <laughs> I mean, part part of the problem is that you have a whole bunch of songs uh, that were uh, by written by uh, Lennon or McCartney, and they handed it off to George Harrison, the Beatles uh, right. the guitarist, to sing the song. And you know, there there are a couple songs where um, even in in that realm, it's not really known whether McCartney or Lennon wrote the song. So for example, there's this very early Beatles song, Do You Want to Know a Secret? Mm -hmm. And and it's, um, you know, George Harrison uh, sang the song on, on the recording, but one of McCartney or Lennon actually wrote it. And it's not it's not known which of the two wrote it. I mean, the, the, this, I suppose the strange thing is that, you know, over the years, both, um, well, McCartney, you know, certainly over the years, and then Lennon until he, uh, you know, his death in 1980, um, you know, I've, always, I've been asked about, you know, who wrote what songs. And generally speaking, they would agree most of the time who wrote what. Right. But there are these handful of songs that they just have conflicting memories about. And, you know, as, as um, you know, as, as an academic, you uh, you know, it's it's kind of mind boggling that you, you wouldn't be able to remember if you wrote a song or not, because uh, it's almost like the same thing as, um, you know, not remembering if you've like written an article. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. like if you're if you're a co-author an article, whether you wrote it or not or, or you know, what your role was in, in the article. But but that's the analogy to, to this uh, songwriting context. So I was reading an article about this that sort of described what you did, as I, as I said in the intro, as kind of turning the songs into data. So how exactly mm -hmm. are you taking In My Life and turning it into data that you can then statistically analyze? Right. That's a really good question. And, and there are a, a ton of choices that one can make in converting uh, the, the musical features of a song into, you know, some, some uh, data object that you can analyze. What we ended up deciding to do was to um, describe, to, to basically think of, of the music as if, as if it were a document of text. Mm -hmm. So in a document of text, you basically have a whole bunch of words in sequence. And a very typical analysis of text involves uh, counting the number of times certain words occur um, or counting the number of times like pairs of words occur in sequence or three words appear in sequence. And when you count the number of times that those particular features of, a, of text occur, you're essentially coming up with some kind of fingerprint about the document. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that frequency of occurrences of all these different words is a particular way of characterizing an entire document. So what we did was we identified, um, depending on which version of, of the analysis you, we did, we, we, we captured basically about 149 or 159 different musical features within uh, these songs, which come about from taking the entire song, stretching it out and having, uh, labeling uh, parts of the song as if they were like individual words. Mm -hmm. so, to, so to be very concrete, what we did was we took, for example, the sung melody of a song and we wrote down the individual notes in sequence. And then what we did was we just simply uh, uh, counted the frequency of individual notes occurring within the song. That would be one representation of a song, just counting the number of times, mm -hmm. say, you know, the, the note, um, 
that is in the key of the song, the, the tonic note occurs, or counting the number of times that the subdominant note occurs. So, so all, all these particular notes in, in a scale, we're counting the number of times they occur. But then we would also count the number of times that there would be no transitions, like going from oh, yeah. um, you know, the root note to the third or the root note to the fifth. So that would be, and it, that would be considered like its own, um, like it, it, its own bin that we're counting over. So what you end up getting out of this whole process essentially is counting the number of times that individual notes occur counting the number of times pairs of notes occur. But then we did the same thing with chord sequences. So, because the, the mm -hmm. chords in a song is another part of the song. It's another characteristic that's inherent to describing a song. So we counted the number of times certain chords appeared and then counted the number of times chord pairs, like chord sequences occurred, chord transitions. So there, there was, so that, that actually accounts now for four different representations. Yeah. There's a fifth one, which is uh, something that's called the contour of a song. It, it's basically describing the shape of the melody, whether it generally goes up or whether it generally goes down or whether it modulates a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, and so there are a bunch of different categories uh, that we count over for the, um, you know, for these contours. What we get in the very end, then, uh, the, the, you know, the, the end product is we have what amounts to being 159 different categories where we're counting the number of times each of those categories appears in a song. So you could think of it as an individual song gets translated into 159 numbers where each of those numbers is counting the occurrence of that feature. Yeah. Of these yeah. 159 different features. Okay, so w when you when you looked at these, were there particular features that really stood out as differentiating between Lennon and McCartney? Yeah, that's one of the things that pops out of uh, out of our modeling. That uh, what we're what we're able to get is uh, what you know what individual features really uh, kind of light up uh, when we perform our our modeling because the modeling is going to be based on the songs of known authorship. And so we have for every song of known authorship, we have the author, but then we have this like 159 different uh, categories that we're counting over. And so I, I can give a couple examples of, yeah. um, of categories. So, yeah, that would be so great. One, that's, one that's very interesting is that one of the categories that we, um, that we capture are no transitions that span greater than an octave. Um, it, while still staying on what's called the diatonic scale. The diatonic scale is essentially the scale of the, the, the notes that are essentially most often used in the key of a song. Mm -hmm. But, the, but the, main, the main focus here really is on having a, 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 a melody jump, a transition in notes that's being sung that's very large. So can you give, so an, there, exam, give an example of a, a song or two that has that? Yeah, absolutely. So one example might be the song, uh, the early uh, Beatles song, Love Me Do. Yeah. So there's one point in the song, and, and so I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna embarrass myself by singing a little bit. Oh, you're a good man. Uh, you're a good man. I, yeah, bra brave might be better than good. Um, uh, so so there's one point in the song where um, the, the, uh, the singer is going, someone to love, somebody new. So that, that, 
jump from someone to love that note and then jump to ah, that's that's over an octave yeah yeah okay. so that's so that's one example great so that turns out to be a paul mccartney song ah. there's one there's one other song in the in the set in the 70 songs that we uh that we examined by lennon and mccartney in the time period that we looked at what um which also has uh, a large jump which is uh eleanor rigby hmm. okay um so in Eleanor Rigby, uh, during the chorus, it goes, um, let's see, it goes, um, all the lonely people, where do they all come from? So that jump from where do, that's an octave and a third. Mm -hmm. So that's huge. And that's yeah. also another Paul McCartney song. Oh, okay. So Paul McCartney uh, was the one who ended up taking quite a bit of liberties in, um, in, in, big shifts in in the melody uh you know big big, diff, big jumps and john lennon tended not to do that you're listening to stats and stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics i'm rosemary pennington with miami university statistics department chair john baylor our guest today is mark glickman senior lecturer of statistics at harvard university and the author of a study that is looking at um uh, data that can help us understand which Beatle wrote which song. And so before we broke, um, Mark, you were talking about the time period and the number of, of songs. So um, mm -hmm. 70 songs that it sounds like are have been in dispute over authorship. Can you talk about the time period you chose for this study and why? Sure. So th so th just to be clear, the 70 songs are ones where we do know the author. Oh, okay. And yeah, because th those are the ones where we we build our model. Oh, so and you're then, using the model, okay? Right, and then and then the ones that we um, the ones that we don't know. I think they're. I want to say they're about they're seven. Oh, um, I'm not getting I'm not going to get that number exactly right. The, the reason I'm not getting it right is that we also ended up applying our approach to songs that were known to be collaborative, uh, because we wanted to see how the model worked on. Oh, on those songs that's interesting. As well. um, but to answer your original question. What we did was we focused on uh, Beatles songs, well, Lennon-McCartney songs that were written or recorded during the period 1962 to 1966. And that included the albums going from Please Please Me, which is the first Beatles album, yeah. up through the album Revolver, mm -hmm. but not going beyond. Like So starting with the album uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, at that point, the Beatles were um, exclusively... Uh, producing music in the studio and not uh, performing in front of uh, large live audiences. So they were focused on their music and the music tended to get much more complex. Uh, so so it's harder decided, to puzzle out. Right. Well, so the, so the idea here is that if we're going to be coming up with some kind of musical, musical fingerprint for Lennon and for McCartney, you know, we want to do it in, um, in a realm where, you know, we, we kind of view their style as not changing all that appreciably. Yeah, mm. yeah, so, that so makes sense. So the problem is that once you start going beyond, um, you know, their um, their non-studio uh, focused work, um, you know, then then it's, you know, we're, we're, you know, they did their style definitely changed over this period of sixty-two to sixty-six. But but once you get beyond nineteen sixty-six, uh, it you know, there's a lot of experimental ideas and. And uh, you know, very um, very unusual kinds of harmonic yeah. uh, motifs brought into the music. So that's why we stuck with that shorter time period. 
Yeah, that was going to be one, my, my next question. Was it seemed like the, it'd be really interesting to think about the evolution of songs by a particular songwriter mm -hmm. over a career. And yeah, you could you yes. could look at maybe was there was there even some observable gradual shift between sixty two and sixty six? We ha we haven't looked at it, uh, so we so we haven't analyzed that um, you know, quantitatively. But um, it's I, I think you know most Beatles fans would would probably acknowledge that you know there there are pretty noticeable changes. Um, yeah. step, you know, from the early years where the, the songs tended to have, you know, like much more of a blues uh, or rock and roll motif, whereas the songs closer to 65 and 66 tended to be, um, you know, much more musically interesting and, um, you know, generally getting away from, you know, these like standard eight bar blues uh, progressions, um, which was much more characteristic of their music early on. But, I, but we did not analyze that quantitatively. But I will say, just to follow up on what you're suggesting, because I think, John, you're right on, on the mark here. One of, one of the future projects that we want to we explore once, you know, we're, we're, um, you know we've satis we're satisfied that this is all working is, is several things. One, one is to, to um, you know, study uh, the time-varying mm -hmm. um, signatures, time-varying yeah. musical signatures. So rather than say over um, you know, a, a five-year, six-year time period, like we're we're doing right now with the Beatles. Um, you know, assume that the signature might vary stochastically over time, mm -hmm. um, and then be able to pick up like where are the changes? Like, you know, is is like certain chord changes more, uh, or combinations of chord changes more frequent in um, you know the the uh, the songwriter's style as they progress in their career, or are other features changing over time? So that would be another thing to detect. You know, the other the other idea too is that um, we can take these uh, musical signatures, and rather than just analyze Lennon McCartney songs, we could analyze a much larger corpus of uh, songwriting, so that we're able to get um, you know all these uh, fingerprints for all these different mm -hmm. musicians, and then be able to even like figure out some. Uh, some influence. So, mm -hmm. so um, you know, like if two musicians have pretty similar styles, particularly one like towards the end of their uh, their career and another at the beginning, and that the you know the years kind of line up, then you could probably start making some um, you know some inferences about whether one musician has influenced another. Mm -hmm. It could be really um, interesting too to sort of think about. Like the '60s were such an interesting musical decade, where mm -hmm. um, you start with um, what feels like not simple, but I think a bit more straightforward kinds of of compositions, and then by the end of the '60s, you're getting into all this crazy psychedelica stuff, and it'd be interesting to see if your model oh, could yeah. also sort of look at evolution broadly over across styles or artists, even just to sort of look at that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely, and, and I'll be the first to say that the features that we're examining right now probably are not enough yeah. uh, to be able mm. to do that kind of characterization. Um, you know, yeah. once you, like, as you said, once you start getting into the late sixties and early seventies, you know, that kind of music tends to get into, you know, uh, rock groups like Yes or King yeah. Crimson or all these like very, um, you know, music that starts sounding like, um, you know, modern classical music, very intricate, very uh, atonal. Um, so, so you'd probably need a different dictionary to be working with yeah. relative to what we've been using with the Beatles. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about the the generalizability of mm -hmm. of the these 
these constituent parts that you're measuring for the music to, to other performers? I mean, do you think that this would still apply to, to other musicians in 62 to 66 window? Or do you think that, that you would need some other, other characteristics to be considered? My sense is that for, um, for the early to mid 60s, this would probably be pretty good. Um, you know, just again, this is purely based on my musical knowledge, which, you know, is, is uh, I don't claim to be, um, you know, super deep, but like, you know, from, you know, my musical knowledge, uh, you know, the music in the early 60s generally was uh, um, riffing off eight bar blues and, mm -hmm. you know, some departures, but um, wasn't very musically rich. And by the time you get into the mid 60s, for most groups, you know, they're, uh, most groups are trying some pretty interesting uh, musical ideas, but not quite at the level of being so experimental um, that, you know, maybe with a, a couple exceptions, like, um, you know, Pink Floyd comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, that, that um, you, you know, that the music actually can be uh, described using fairly simple uh, musical features derived from melody lines in, in harmonic structure. This uh, is like we're doing for the Beatles. This is a work in progress, and you have already received a fair amount of attention for that. So I, I guess I'm going to ask you kind of what has that been like to be sort of in the midst of this and then also sort of be dealing with, um, I know you've uh, there have been a couple of stories about this, uh, to sort of be juggling your work and then also trying to figure out how to present that work in media uh, about mm -hmm. a band that, um, I mean, is perhaps one of the most beloved, you know, sort of cultural figures, icons, um, uh, of the last century? Mm. Uh, it's been interesting. I mean, I, I suppose one of the um, uh, one of the nice things about this project is that it's uh, generally easy to explain it to non-quantitative people. So mm -hmm. to the extent that, um, you know, we've been having these conversations with the media, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward to come back and say, well, look, you know, here are some of the musical features that are uh, that highlight the difference between McCartney and Lennon through our analysis, and then it's just easy to to point to those features and give example songs, and um, you know, in some ways that that actually uh, you know is able to resonate, I think, with um, people that aren't really quantitative. So I suppose in that sense, it, it, it's been um, you know it's been kind of a fun process to um, you know kind of parade this uh, this work around. On the other hand, um, you know, we're, we're taking this work seriously. Uh, you know, we, you know, we're doing our due diligence to make sure that our, our model is um, being fit properly, which involves a lot of checking mm -hmm. um, on, on um, you know, a lot of out of sample prediction to make sure that these mm -hmm. predictions are, are, are calibrated well. So, you know, right now we're in the process of, of uh, you know, finalizing these details. And so, you know, we haven't, um, you know, at this point, we haven't made our work public because, you know, as uh, as my uh, colleague um, is quick to point out, based on his past experience with this kind of work, that, you know, you have really one chance to get it right. Yeah. And, you know, we, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to come up with, you know, put something out in the public and, and you know, basically realize that, you know, we didn't dot our I's and cross our yeah. T's. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, uh, you know, kind of get a lot of pushback. So, so we're being pretty careful with, um, with this project before, uh, before we, um, you know, release the, the, the technical report, which we'll be submitting to peer review journal. 
Yeah, I think that's really smart, especially mm -hmm. given the, you know, you've, just the interest that this has generated to date. You know that when you go live with this, it's gonna it's gonna be even more. No, I hope not. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Hey, I, I want I want my life back. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you picked this project, man. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I know. I just yeah, we deserve it. Yeah, we get we we get what we deserve. Hey, I, no, I, no, it's you know, it's, it's actually quite a bit of fun, and and um, I'm I'm actually hoping, um, uh, you know, specifically once. You know, once we've ironed out all these details, I mean, I, you know, certainly would love to have the opportunity to, you know, give some, you know, technical talks about it while toting my guitar around, you know, so I can actually give some demonstrations. Fun. And, and, and I've, I've done that a couple times so far, um, cool. but, you know, having it, um, you know, have, having this be something where, um, you know, I could explain a little bit more of the details and, but still make it a fun talk by uh, having, um, you know, having it supplemented with uh, some live music might not be so bad. Mm -hmm. that, that's cool. I, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that, that uh, one of the things that was characteristic of McCartney's songs were the big jump. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering, do you have sort of a similar, similar characteristic that, that really was a, 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 a telltale sign of a, of a Lennon piece? Yeah, uh, there, there is. Uh, it's a little more, it's probably not as uh, more obviously noticeable, but um, yeah, th so one of the so I could tell you this might this might provide a little bit more uh, context for what I'm about to tell you, which is that um, you know uh, John Lennon um, came from uh, a fairly broken home, mm -hmm. and, and um, you know he didn't have a, a very uh, supportive upbringing. Whereas Paul McCartney, in some ways, had a had slightly the opposite experience. I mean his his mother died early, but um, but he had a very supportive home. His his father was a musician. Um, and, you know, he, he had a, a very a positive environment. And the way that sometimes gets manifested is that um, John Lennon tended to be a little bit more um, uh, kind of with, withholding in or taking fewer liberties in the way he would write music. He would tend generally to rely on slightly more standard musical ideas than Paul McCartney tended to. Oh. So, you know, at one artifact, of course, is with Paul McCartney, the, these large musical jumps, these large melodic jumps is, um, you know, sort of an artifact of uh, his willingness to take these kind of liberties. Mm -hmm. Whereas John Lennon uh, tended to stay in, in slightly more confined, uh, confined uh, regions of notes when he was singing. And he would also... Um, tend to rely on more standard kinds of musical ideas. So, so one of the things that came out of this model is uh, a particular chord transition that John Lennon would use much more often than Paul McCartney would use. And um, this may or may not be meaningless, so I'll just, I'll just say it. Um, <laughs> what, what John Lennon tended to do was use uh, the chord transition that goes from the tonic key, the tonic uh, chord of a song, which is like the root chord, and then translating or making a, a change to the minor six. And that might just sound like, you know, kind of musical gibberish, but, but going from the, um, the, the, uh, the, the tonic chord to the, the minor six is one of the most natural chord changes in all of, uh, all of pop music. Mm. It's essentially going from the, um, the, the, the root of the major key to what's called the relative minor. It's a very natural transition. John Lennon tended to use that much more often than Paul McCartney did. And again, that's also consistent with the idea that 
um, that John Lennon intended to use more standard um, musical, uh, I'm sorry, John Lennon used more standard musical ideas. There's, I mean, I can give a, a quick example, is there, which is, is um, there, yeah, is there, are there a couple of songs that you think are, are that? Um... Yeah, I mean, let me, let me, yeah, let me think. Um, so let's see, there, um, he, he does it, uh, he does it in the song Help, mm. uh, the, the song It's Only Love, which is a little bit more obscure, but at the very beginning of the song It's Only Love, I wonder if I can actually call it up really quickly. those two chords that you just heard that translation from from the, the chord that sounds happy to the chord that sounds slightly sad yeah that's going from okay. the the tonic to the minor six okay so that change john lennon uses all the time and McCall, paul mccartney uses very infrequently so so mark one that's of the one questions one. that we often ask uh, when we have guests that join us is if we had students that or others that are interested in getting involved in the type of analysis that you're describing here, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that's that they would study or that they would do to be able to to, to play in this same space? Right. Well, so the the techniques that we're using are um, you know to analyze our data are uh, very closely related to the ones that tend to be used in text analysis. Mm, so, yeah. so the kinds of, um, of topics would be things like topic models, um, uh, latent Dirichlet allocation, um, models for bag of words. I, 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 I promised <laughs> I, I promised you that um, I, I would mention what a bag of words is. Um, so uh, bag, bag of words just simply means that I have these, uh, like a document of words, and I'm taking the words and I'm, I'm grabbing them all together, and then I'm distributing, the, distributing them into different bags, and I'm counting the number of times they appear in each of the oh, different yeah, bags. Oh, yeah, yeah, so it's a way of categorizing them. And that's why it's them. called bags of, bag of words, okay. yeah, bag of words models. So, but there's a whole area in machine learning called bag of words models, and that would be, um, you know, the place to, to start um, you know, uh, learning about the techniques that are used uh, to analyze uh, text uh, uh, word frequencies in text. So, Mark, that's about all the time we have, but I do have one last final question for you. Sure. Are you sick of the Beatles yet? <laughs> never, never, <laughs> never, never. That's the beauty. Of, the beauty of the Beatles is that you can just keep on listening to the songs and hear something something new all the time. Well, thank you so much for being here today. <laughs> my, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, iTunes, or other places you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.